Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Burns, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of Northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. So we are in Ephesians, and last week we finished chapter 5, and this week we should start on chapter 6. I'll back up again so we get a run at it. And you remember last week he sort of throws in this relationship counseling stuff, starting in 5.22, and I don't know why he put it in there. It, it's sort of a, you know, just sort of there in the middle of stuff. But he did. And, and it, I mean, it's good stuff. It's worth doing, but it's just, I didn't understand why he stuck it in the letter. So in 22 through the end of chapter 5, he talks about husbands and wives. And it is in what's called introversion, which is you have subject one, Subject two, and then back to subject one again. So subject one is wives submit to your own husbands. And the corresponding part to that is verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So the submission to your husband is really an expression of respect. And I don't know of any marriage where the husband and wife don't talk about things and wrestle with things and, and all of that kind of stuff. But what he's saying here is the wife should be respectful of her husband. And then in the middle, it says the husband should love his wife. And this is because of the difference between the way men and women are wired. And men are wired so they operate out of respect and love is not the first thing they do and so when men interact with each other it's typically on the basis of respect or lack of respect women on the other hand are wired naturally for love and again not that respect isn't important but that's not the first thing and so what people tend to do is they tend to treat each other the way they would want to be treated. In other words, if the relationship is healthy, you typically treat the other person as you would want to be treated. And in a marriage, that's a problem because men want to be treated with respect. So in treating their wives with respect, they can deprive them of the love that they need or the demonstrations of love that they need. Similarly, wives, when they act out of love toward their husbands, can deprive them of the respect that they need. So your instinct, as I say, when, there's a, when the relationship is healthy, is to treat your partner the way you would want to be treated. And that doesn't work with men and women. And that's, in fact, one of the problems with marriages is wives love their husbands and often treat them as children or whatever, but don't treat them with the respect that they need. 
And similarly, you know, the, the sort of the old classic line, yeah, I'll respect you in the morning. That's not what a woman primarily needs. What she primarily needs is love. And respect, is, as I say, is not unimportant, but that's not the first thing. So what he's saying here is the normal way that you're wired to treat people that you like, which is the way you would want to be treated, is in fact not the correct way. So from there he comes down to chapter 6 and he's continuing on this relationship thing. So now in verse six or chapter 6 he says, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. And that of course is one of the Ten Commandments. That's the fifth commandment, which he's just repeating. And again, remember, who's he writing to? Ephesians, who are? Gentiles. Gentiles. So, we, again, we, we tend to think of the church in the United States, and there isn't anybody in the United States that hadn't heard of the Ten Commandments. Most people get recite them, which is why we had them on public monuments and courts and stuff like that. But everybody's heard of them. So when you say honor your father and your mother in the United States, everybody recognizes, oh, okay, we're talking about one of the commandments because we are essentially a Christian nation. Well, the Ephesians aren't. They don't have the Torah. They don't have the scriptures. So what he's doing is he's saying these things that are scriptural, and he's saying them to people who have not necessarily heard them before. Yeah, the, the comment was because they're sort of like Boulder. No, that's, that's not the problem here, is that they're coming out of paganism into a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while they may have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and while they may be saved in the Baptist sense, they're really untaught. Because you can't assume that they have had the scriptures read to them, they had, in this case, perhaps Paul or some other evangelist come through and has given them the knowledge of what Messiah did and has told them the gospel, which is to say that if they come into a relationship with this God, their sins can be forgiven and a bunch of other stuff. But there's a whole lot of stuff in the Torah that isn't covered by that. And so when Paul here is talking about honor your father and your mother, he's repeating one of the Ten Commandments to them, but it's not in a context where they necessarily would have heard it before. And, and we today, when we read these letters, having grown up in the church, most of us, or in a Christian nation where at least you know years ago, all of the culture and everything else was steeped in Christian traditions. Even if people weren't Christian, you knew stuff about the Bible because it was so prevalent in the culture. So if we were to send a letter today to Cheyenne and say, honor your father and your mother, the people in Cheyenne would know that you were recording one of the Ten Commandments. They would not necessarily have known that in Ephesus. And so as you're reading these, you sort of want to put yourself into the mental framework of the people to whom he's writing. It's from God's right. Yeah. They would they would have been pagans. 
Gentile pagans. And then so having come into it now, what Paul's doing is trying to jam as much scripture into his letters as he can because these are all things that they don't necessarily know. The only place the Torah scrolls are is in the synagogue. You were going to say something, Paul. A, certainly yes. The question was, is some of Paul's target audience the Lost Ten Tribes? If you read Peter's letter, you know, remember, we had the franchise split up by the the Council of Jerusalem. And Paul got the Gentile franchise, and Peter got the Hebrew franchise. And if you read Peter's letter, he starts off by addressing himself to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Let me make sure it's 12. And I'm, I'm virtually positive it is. Oh, James? I'm sorry. Then I misspoke. It, it's James. Yeah, James starts off his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Peter addresses his to the exiles. So remember, we're only at this point about 800 years from the destruction of the northern kingdom. And so apparently there were pockets of these guys scattered throughout Asia and up that way toward the Silk Road and so forth. And in fact, you find them there today. So to a certain extent, remnant of the 12 tribes in exile were known. Since we know that the 10 tribes in exile got absorbed and disappeared, you can also assume that there were lots of members of those tribes who were in Gentile cities who had been absorbed and may in fact have been in these churches that Paul is addressing. But that's not what he's aiming at. Coincidentally, he may have found some of them, but that isn't his target audience because Peter has got that franchise. Start chapter 6 again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, one of the things that modern society has as a problem with the scriptures is, you know, you'll have people being snarky saying, well, when do I get to stone my teenage son? And what I find is that these instructions are remarkably balanced. In other words, they're, they're not harsh, and they're not intended to be harsh. Certainly, occasionally, with a child, you have to be harsh every now and then. I mean, they need it to get them back on track. But the overarching thing is not harshness. It is simply firmness. And you know, as I say, it, having raised four of them myself, occasionally you've got to be harsh. But that isn't the first thing you should reach for. And what Paul is saying here is, yeah, children, you need to obey your parents, but then he's saying to the fathers, and you need not to be harsh with your children, and sort of in parentheses, because it'll make them bitter and angry, which is not what you want. Verse 5, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Messiah 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Messiah, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. A couple of things there. And again, you know, the fashion today is to be snarky about slavery in the Bible. And a couple of things. There's two kinds of biblical slavery. I think everybody pretty much knows this. There's the slavery of Hebrew to Hebrew. And that kind of slavery was done for people who were A, thieves, or B, couldn't pay their debts. And it was for a certain period of time. And at the end of that time, the slave would go out free and the master was required to set him up so that he didn't just get you know, kicked out of the door with you know, a new suit of clothes and 10 bucks in his pocket. You had, you had to furnish him well so that he would be able to succeed. Then you had Gentile slavery, and that's different. In Gentile slavery, you were allowed to own the slave in perpetuity. There was no year of release for Gentile slavery. Now, given the problems that Israel had with slaves, in other words, one of the reasons that they got kicked out of the land is because they weren't doing the year of release. In other words, they weren't doing what was supposed to be done. But with a Gentile slave that comes into a Hebrew household, it is theoretically possible for that Gentile slave to say, I want to join Israel. I want to become a sojourner. I want to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And once he becomes a sojourner, and once he comes into the knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is accepted into Israel, then the year of release business kicks in. This is all theoretical. As I say, since they historically had problems with the way they dealt with slaves, I don't know that they did it that way. I'm simply going from Scripture. You understand what I'm saying? God is very, very big on freedom. That's why he took his people out of the land of Egypt. And when he puts them into the land, they are basically under the freest form of government that has ever existed, which is judges. And again, ideally, a judge is the most benign form of government because the only time you go before a judge is when you can't agree on something. So as long as you and I can live in peace, the government doesn't bother us. It's only when you and I can't agree that we go to a judge and say, we can't agree, we need you to make a decision. Now, again, in our system, judges have gotten out of control and they haven't done what they're supposed to do. But the straight term of the thing is a judge system is the most free. Now, certainly you had tribal elders and you had family you know, units and hierarchy and all that kind of stuff. So that isn't, it isn't the case that people just ran wild, but it was the freest system ever to exist. And God himself, I believe, gives us free will, which again is the freest thing that exists. And so on the one hand, you have this God which purchased for his people freedom. And that's what Messiah did too with his sacrifice. 
purchase liberty and freedom, right? On the other hand, you have this toleration of slavery. You understand what I'm saying? And so you got to reconcile those things somehow. You need to be careful with that because the slavery that Paul's talking about here is just exactly what you talked about. It wasn't race-based, but it was, in many cases, every bit as harsh as what occurred in the South in the United States before the Civil War. Talking across purposes here. There's slavery involving Hebrews. There's one set of rules for those with the year of release and everything. There's slavery involving everybody else. And the slavery involving everybody else is qualitatively no different than the slavery that happened in the South in the United States. Except it wasn't race-based. It, it, the things that you're talking about in the Torah are specifically with respect to Hebrew slaves. And God says they're mine and you may have stewardship over them for a while, but remember they're mine. And that's different than Gentile slaves. So, anyway, what I'm going to suggest to you is, going back to my original thing on slaves, the underlying thing about slavery here is, at least with respect to Israel, is that slaves were brought in and either taught or learned Torah by being in that culture, okay? And theoretically, at least, they could then say, I want to be a proselyte. And if they say they want to be a proselyte, then there's a process by which they become Hebrews. And at least theoretically, at that point, the laws about Hebrew slaves then kick in. Now, again, understand that one of the things that happened before the exile is that the Hebrews were not treating their slaves according to Torah. That's one of the things that God got chapped about. So when I say everything here is theoretical, I mean, you know, as God and, and everybody's writing the Torah, that may be what the rules are, but Israel in its humanity didn't always follow those rules. Okay? And I don't know how it was actually handled. All right, onward. I am about verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, so now, again, just doing grammar here, he is addressing himself to believing slaves and believing masters. So both the master and the slave are believers coming out of paganism. But he's not addressing himself to a believing slave who has a pagan master. The, the letter here is balanced. So he's talking to both masters and slaves with the assumption that both of them are believers. And what he's doing is he is now pointing them back to Leviticus, right? And Exodus, where the Torah describes how to treat Hebrew slaves. And it specifically says that you will not rule over them with rigor, which is the way the Egyptians ruled over the Israelite slaves. Remember making bricks without straw and make work stuff just to keep you exhausted and all that kind of stuff? That is specifically forbidden for Hebrew slaves. 
And what Paul is now doing is saying to believing Gentile masters who have believing Gentile slaves, you need to treat these guys as if you both were Hebrews. I'm maybe down to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. All right. Remember, we talked a couple of times ago back in chapter 3 of this same letter where he says that the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah was so that God could make an example to the principalities and powers in heaven. Let's go back and read it. I think it's uh, chapter 3. I'll pick it up at... uh, Verse 8. So I'm in chapter 3, Ephesians 3 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Messiah and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the assembly, the ecclesia, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And we went through a riff where we crossed that with, with uh, Corinthians. And the idea that had those rulers understood what was going to happen when they crucified Messiah, they never would have done it. And the mystery is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah now allows the Gentiles to come in and be fellow heirs. This has again been a theme throughout this letter. And so now what he's doing is he's closing and wrapping up with Okay, you remember those powers and authorities that we talked about earlier and how the wisdom of God was made manifest to them and you Gentiles have come in. Now I'm telling you, you guys are in the battle and you have got to be aware that these beings exist and you've got to be on your guard against them. So in other words, back in chapter 3, he explained that because of the sacrifice of Messiah, the Gentiles can come in, and this was made known to the rulers in heaven. Remember, God has got a rebellion on his hands. That's, that's part of what's going on here. And so now he's saying, all right, these rebels in heaven, you need to put on armor against them because they are now out to get you. So having brought the subject up in chapter 3, he now is giving practical advice about what to do about it in chapter 6 before he closes. The advice is is not specific to Gentiles, but what he's writing to is Gentiles who heretofore didn't understand what was going on. In this letter, he has given them an insight into what's going on. And he's saying you're in a spiritual battleground and you have enemies. Now, Gentiles know that, man. That's why they worship demons. Okay? I mean, Gentiles are every bit as spiritually connected as Hebrews are, they're not stupid and they're not dull. So, you know, the, all the occult stuff is the Gentile world's way of dealing with the spiritual regime that Paul is talking about here. So what Paul is now telling them is this is God's way 
of dealing with that spiritual regime. And by the way, one of the things that I have heard preached, I've heard several things preached about the armor of God. I have heard people say that the messianics especially, that the armor of God represents the high priest's guard. That's nonsense. Not true. Incorrect. False. Wrong. In the first place, priests serve barefoot. So when you're putting on shoes in this armor of God, you've, you've already disqualified yourself from being a priest because priests serve barefoot. Priests don't wield swords. So there's all sorts of stuff that is inconsistent. Other people have taught, well, this is a Roman soldier's garb. And that could be. Uh, I just sort of think of it as a generic warrior. And if you want to think of it as a Roman centurion or something like that, God bless you. But it doesn't have anything to do with a high priest. It, it's simply getting dressed and equipped for warfare. Pick it up at 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Now, notice that your requirement here is to stand. It is not to charge. In other words, you are being attacked and your job is to stand and hold. Occupying the land, you know, whatever you want to call it, but it's at least in this passage of scripture you're not being sent out there to conquer the world you are simply to hold what you got verse 14 stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness okay so the and again all I'm suggesting to you here is he is using typical equipment of a warrior and describing biblical principles in terms of earthly equipment. So the belt of truth is, again, you are dealing with the father of lies, right? In Satan, you're dealing with the father of lies. So the first thing he says about is you need to have the truth. And the breastplate of righteousness. What's righteousness? Yeah right behavior and in other words if you are not behaving with righteousness you have the enemy then has some place to attack you one of his titles is the accuser of the brethren so if you are not being righteous he can rightly then come and accuse you and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace so again, if you are inclined to move around, what you want to do as you move around is spread the gospel. Carry it with you. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones. Now what do you suppose would be contained in the flaming darts of the evil one? I would suggest fear. In other words, what he's trying to do is get you to be afraid and the specific alternative to fear is faith. Fear and faith are two sides of the same coin. It's the same mechanism. In other words, the thing about you that makes the things you fear come to pass will also make the things that you have faith in come to pass. Same spiritual mechanism, if you will. 
So the, what I'm suggesting is the darts that you are quenching is this case of doubt or fear or unbelief, which is the thing that he's trying to get you to operate in. In other words, if he can get you operating in fear, then he's got you off your game. So the, the specific against that is the shield of faith. So anyway, verse 16 again. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. All right, so the helmet of salvation. I will suggest to you that represents confidence. You know, people are going to be swinging at your head, and if you've got a good helmet on your head, that represents confidence. You're not ducking all the time. Well, confidence in what you're doing. In, in other words, that, you, that what you're doing is what God told you to do, and that you are acting the way you're supposed to be acting, and that you are confident that you're going to prevail. Now, I certainly agree that ultimately he's the one who's going to win the battle, which is why you're just told to stand. But in order to stand, you've got to be confident that you're going to win. Feel free to parse these some other way. I'm just giving you what it means to me. If you like some other preacher's interpretation, God bless you. It's okay. And the, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you know, the sword is your only real weapon. The rest of it is just defense. So the sword is the only thing that you can do any damage with to the enemy, other than maybe, you know, hurt his hands when he hits your helmet. That's sort of a passive thing. But the word is the offensive part of the, of the thing. Your words have power. In other words, the things you say have power because you have dominion here. And they are most powerful when you are quoting the Word of God. And, and again, that goes back to the fear and faith thing and, and all that kind of stuff, is you want to make sure the stuff coming out of your mouth is scriptural and in line with what God wants to have you do. And then your words have power. Now, it's power that was given to you, power that was delegated to you, not power that you generated yourself. But the power is yours. You're expected to use it. Now notice how you use it. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In other words, use your voice in support of your brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. That's what prayer is. Lending your support to others making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what Paul is doing here is saying, use this weapon of yours, your voice, and use it also in my aid. Pray for me that I would be able to say the things that I need to be able to say. That's the armor of God, at least in my interpretation. I say other preachers will have different takes on it, and it's, it's all good. Uh, I'm not quarreling with any of them. 21. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, 
Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Yeshua Messiah with love incorruptible. And notice that he finishes up with love, which is, again, according to the assertion that we started with, the thing that they had lost by the time Yeshua is writing his letter in Revelation. So the last thing he leaves them with is the thing that they eventually are going to have trouble with. And, I, and I'm again suggesting to you that he's prepositioning that so when they find themselves out there in trouble, they can go back and see what the problem is. I'm done. Would somebody like closing prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.